Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must a kiss is just a kiss. A Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Over the past few weeks, we talked about the major scandals of the early 1920s, which motivated Hollywood to lure a member of the Harding administration, Will Hayes, to come help them placate their critics by making a show of clamping down on bad behavior on screen and off, without actually doing anything to seriously hamper their ability to make money. As we've seen, this tended to involve scapegoating performers who the studios thought they could live without and who they speculated would do less good for their bottom lines than bad. Today's subject was one of those scapegoated although this is the least interesting thing about her story. Here, an excerpt from Hollywood Babylon, introducing us to showgirl, divorcee, and sometime Charlie Chaplin girlfriend, Peggy Hopkins Joyce. Charlie Chaplin did not seek out scandal. Scandal came to him. 
A big woman in Charlie's love life was also one of the richest, the original gold-digging Ziegfeld girl, Peggy Hopkins Joyce. She cruised into Hollywood with a $3 million bankroll, alimony from five husbands, in the scandal-streaked year of 1922, just to see if the most talked-about sin city in the world measured up to its reputation. Peggy arrived in Hollywood dressed in chicest black, set off by a display of emeralds and diamonds. A young man had just taken his life on her account in Paris. Her mourning was confined to her wardrobe, however, and soon she and Chaplin were having dîner à deux. Her opener had a certain showgirl candor. Is it true what all the girls say, that you hung like a horse? The big blonde and the little fellow were soon enjoying a summer sojourn on the island of Catalina. Charlie having set aside preparations for his next project, Napoleon, to indulge this idol. Charlie and Peggy sought out a secluded cove on the far side of the island where they could picnic and do some nude sunbathing, unobserved. Or so they believed. The presence of these two celebrities on the little island had not gone unnoticed, however, and several of the more intrepid native Catalinians had hiked up the mountain overlooking the cove, equipped with powerful binoculars. Soon after, the wild goats native to Catalina acquired the nickname Charlie's. During their brief but intense friendship, Peggy regaled Chaplin with the story of her life as a gold-digging adventuress. Chaplin put these anecdotes to good use, several incidents in Peggy's early career providing him with the necessary inspiration for his film, A Woman in Paris. Peggy Hopkins Joyce emerged as a New York City celebrity around the same time as the term gold digger entered the popular lexicon. There were rumors that the derogatory use of the word to refer to women who sought riches through marriage was coined to describe Peggy. But this is probably not true. What is true is that though she did work as a showgirl and actress, on stage and in film, she really became famous for being famous, helping to establish celebrity for celebrity's sake as a phenomenon, and the celebrity that she acquired through other means, primarily marriage and divorce, was what allowed her to dabble in fields that were traditional avenues to fame, such as Broadway and the movies. Once Peggy became an object of fascination, the media covered her in insane and mundane detail. The focus for headline writers and gossip readers was Peggy's habit of acquiring and disposing of rich husbands over and over and over again in a time when women who wanted to be treated seriously just didn't do that. As we've seen, in the early 1920s, there was a push and pull between breaks from tradition, especially in terms of gender and sex, and a desire to reclaim a moral order lost. Peggy Hopkins Joyce became a symbol of the former side of that tug of war, of post-World War I decadence, and the feeling that, especially for women, there was no reason not to live a life guided by pleasure when everything could end the day after tomorrow. Which it basically did. This whole spirit came crashing down with the stock market in 1929. 
And soon thereafter, so did Peggy. Today, we will explore how Peggy Hopkins Joyce became Peggy Hopkins Joyce. Her early career in which typical activities that led to fame were besides the point, how she ended up in Hollywood, and what she did with and without Charlie Chaplin while she was there. And we'll explain how Chaplin took the seeds of Peggy's experience and planted them in one of his most controversial films. Join us, won't you, for the tale of Peggy Hopkins Joyce. Peggy was born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1893 as Marguerite Upton. Margie, as she was called as a child, was always a charmer. As her father remembered, she would do anything in the world to please anybody, and she never cried unless she was sick. Margie's father got to know his daughter well, because when she was about 10, her mother abandoned them and started a new family with another man. And Margie's father soon found his own new wife and had another child. It seems like no accident that this woman who would become an international symbol of divorce and opportunistic remarriage came from a family in which divorce and remarriage were done as casually as was possible in the first years of the 20th century. Other people might pledge till death do us part, but that wasn't how it went where little Margie came from, and that's not what it would be like where she was going. By her mid-teens, Margie had dropped out of school and moved out on her own. She was entranced by stories of vaudeville and theatrical actresses and the exciting and glamorous lives they supposedly led, with suitors sending diamonds up to their dressing rooms with invitations to dinner. This co-mingling of consumerism with romance was a fairly new thing for a working-class girl to aspire to, and most of society would have still thought that showgirls were not to be looked up to. But Peggy, as she was now calling herself, would never let most of society hold her back. In 1910, while working as a manicurist in Richmond, Virginia, Peggy did the nails of some vaudeville performers, And by the time their nails had dried, she had convinced them to let her join their troupe. Peggy quickly learned a few bits, like standing still on a wheel, but mostly she got by in the act on her beauty and vivaciousness. While performing in Denver, Peggy met a man named Everett Archibald Jr., a traveling salesman from a well-to-do family. After nine months of dating, they married. Because her husband traveled for a living, Peggy figured what he didn't know wouldn't hurt him. And during his absences, she saw other men. One night, Archibald returned from a business trip early and walked in on Peggy in their home with another man. Angry and unsure of how to deal with this flagrant infidelity, 
Peggy's husband left town on another trip. Four days later, he got a call from his father. Peggy had skipped town with her clothes and some cash. The next time her husband heard from her, it was via a postcard Peggy sent from the East Coast asking for a divorce. Some reports contend Archibald did not divorce Peggy, but instead was able to have the marriage annulled on the grounds that he had not been aware that his wife was just 17 at the time of the wedding. Before that, Peggy had gone to live with her mother in Richmond, where she discovered she was pregnant. She gave birth to a son in April 1911, but he died tragically four months later when someone in the household accidentally gave the baby too much opiate cough syrup. Peggy omitted this sad episode from her memoirs, instead accounting for this period of time by making up a story about having retreated from her first marriage into a southern finishing school. It was an unsatisfactory time, Peggy wrote. The other girls are hateful to me because I have not nice things to wear like them. I would do anything for a real silk chemise. Thus, Peggy made the fetishism of luxury and the idea that anything was worth doing to get from where she was to where she wanted to be part of her origin story. The real story is that, after her child died, Peggy ended up in Washington, D.C., where she insinuated herself in the post-finishing school party circuit. She soon met Sherburne Philbrick Hopkins, the black sheep son of a lawyer who consulted with Central American governments and who was part of a storied American family with ties to the Mayflower. Peggy married Hopkins in September 1913 and got to quick work spending his money. To be fair, her job as the wife of a Hopkins was to be arm candy at nightly dinners, galas, and receptions, many of them formal. And since it was always a rotating crew of the same people at these events, she needed to wear a fresh dress every night. Peggy did an excellent job of going to parties and enthusiastically making the acquaintance of the attendees, especially the male attendees. Perhaps she did too good a job of this, for Mr. Hopkins began to feel neglected, and he turned to his mother, who lived with the newlyweds, with his complaints. Peggy's mother-in-law then began controlling and patrolling her every move. And eventually, Peggy cracked. In early 1915, about a year and a half after the wedding, Peggy ran away from the marriage and headed to New York. She checked into a suite at the St. Regis that was held for her husband's family while she plotted her next steps. She'd spend her days pounding the pavements, not looking for work, but looking into the windows of fancy boutiques, coveting things she couldn't buy. This lasted a few weeks, and then, when she was kicked out of the St. Regis, 
and the cash she had pilfered before leaving Hopkins had dwindled to the point where she was having trouble eating regularly. She started knocking on doors of Broadway theaters, offering herself for whatever kind of work they had available. After a series of crushing rejections, she wandered, dazed and hungry, into a boutique and fell into a cushy chair. The owner of the shop, a Madame Francis, heard Peggy's sob story and took pity on her, and gave her a new suit, $10, and an introduction to some of the men in power in the New York theater world. Peggy was promptly cast in a style show at Broadway's Palace Theater. It was essentially a modern fashion show. Girls like Peggy would walk up and down the stage, modeling the latest clothes made by important designers from both Europe and New York. Peggy was billed as the star of the show, and she modeled three different looks, pajamas, a daytime suit, and a quote-unquote silver foam evening dress. This show quickly became a sensation, and Peggy had to answer to a New York Times reporter who knew she had not long before been a married woman and a member of Washington, D.C. high society. Technically, she was still a married woman. She was even billed in the style show as Mrs. Sherburne Hopkins, Jr. But Peggy told the reporter that the marriage was only a technicality, and she explained in rather radical language why she had left. I made up my mind about a month ago that I wanted to be independent, that I didn't want to be beholden to any man for anything, Peggy said. So I told Mr. Hopkins I was going home to visit my mother and came here instead. I had to fib or he would not have let me go. In 1915, young women who had married into wealthy and important political families didn't just walk away from this life of respectable luxury in order to become a model-slash-showgirl. That Peggy had done exactly this and refused to be shamed for it turned her into an instant celebrity amongst the emerging New York tabloids, who were hungry for just such a character who would rile the moral righteousness of one segment of their readers and stimulate the fantasy lives of others. A few months after her Broadway debut, Peggy was cast in small parts in a couple of films. Then Peggy finally attracted the attention of the man who could take a girl like her to the next level, Florenz Ziegfeld. At her audition, Ziegfeld asked to see her legs. Well, if you can do anything at all on stage, you will do, Ziegfeld declared. Little one, if you listen to me, I will make you the most famous girl in New York. I am going to pay you a hundred dollars a week. But of course, this is a great deal of money, so you must work hard and try to justify my faith in you. Peggy's role in The Follies was not all that different from her role in the style show. She wore clothes and looked stunning, although the costumes in The Follies were not exactly high fashion. 
They were instead fashioned to reveal enough of the showgirl's body so as to inspire the male audience members to imagine what the rest looked like. One of Peggy's admirers, circa 1916, was Joseph Skank, who at that time was running amusement parks with his brother Nick, but would soon become a major film industry mogul. That year, he would appoint himself manager of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle and help the still pre-scandal comedian set up his production company at Paramount. Rumors that Peggy was being kept by Skank drifted through the East Coast film industry. She was more famous than Skank was at that point, but not for what the movie folk considered the right reasons. When Skank began wooing actress Norma Talmadge, Norma told her mother that her new suitor was involved with Peggy, and Norma's mom exclaimed, That tramp? Two months later, Skank married Norma Talmadge and presumably cut Peggy off, because he simultaneously began funneling his money and energy into funding his new wife's films. Peggy's commentary in her memoirs suggests that what she liked about being a showgirl was not appearing in the show, per se. Spent a hundred dollars today on a dress, went one memory. My pictures are in the papers nearly every day, went another. Some of these pictures were related to a short film Peggy appeared in around this time, called The Bride, produced by illustrator James Montgomery Flagg as part of his series of shorts called Girls You Know, The Bride showed that Peggy was up for gently mocking herself. In the film, she starred as a young girl embarking on a wedding, where the minister declares, if at first you don't succeed, wed, wed again. This film led to a major part in a feature called The Woman and the Law, directed by Raoul Walsh and starring Walsh's wife, Miriam Cooper, as a character based on Blanca de Sales, a Chilean socialite who had shot and killed her ex-husband in the midst of a custody dispute. Peggy would play the husband's mistress. Again, she was being cast for the extra-textual power of her celebrity, which was tied to the perception of her real-life promiscuity. In those days, actors weren't always aware while they were filming of how their characters would be presented to the audience via intertitles. And in this case, Walsh deliberately hid from Peggy that the finished movie would portray her character as something just barely short of a whore. One title would claim that the character, quote, lives in a luxurious apartment where she entertains nobility and taxi drivers with equal adroitness. Cooper described Peggy as a high-class tramp who wasn't very smart either, and it was easy to keep the real meaning of the role from her. Peggy appeared in a few straight theatrical plays over the next couple of years, to mixed reviews but consistent coverage, in the New York newspapers and glossy magazines like Vanity Fair. 
Peggy was happy to work just enough to ensure that this steady stream of celebrity continued. But when one of her plays, A Sleepless Night, traveled to Chicago, she met a man who opened her mind to higher ambitions. James Stanley Joyce, called Stanley, was a lumber tycoon who became infatuated with Peggy when he first saw her on stage in May 1919. Stanley was not the only man in Peggy's life in Chicago. The Chicago men are splendid, she recalled later. I have met a lot of them, and they certainly know how to spend money. But Stanley was persistent, and he was loaded. At the end of the Chicago run of the play, he presented Peggy with a massive emerald. Of course I would rather have had a diamond, she said. But anyway, I suppose emeralds are worth a little money too. This one was worth $20,000 in 1919 dollars, the equivalent of $300,000 in 2018 dollars. Stanley proposed, and Peggy told him she didn't know him well enough, and anyway, she was still married. Stanley said he could help her get a quick and easy divorce from the husband she had abandoned in D.C. Peggy went back to New York and moved into a Park Avenue apartment paid for by Stanley, but she played hard to get for months. Finally, Peggy agreed to marry him. She didn't love Stanley Joyce, but she figured she had nothing to lose except for her unwanted second husband, and she had a lot to gain. Later, she would recall feeling a pang of guilt over her reasons for accepting Stanley's proposal, knowing that she was only marrying him for the money. But then she concluded, it is better to be mercenary than miserable. In January 1920, Peggy got her divorce from Hopkins, and three days later, married Joyce. Like her previous unions, this one went sour quickly. Largely because Peggy was in it for one reason only. She would tell a later lover that on her wedding night, Peggy locked herself in the bedroom and announced through the closed door that she would only let Stanley in if he wrote her a check for $500,000 and slipped it under the door. Stanley did as he was told, and Peggy claimed she cashed the check first thing the next morning. Unsure how long she was going to be able to pull this marriage off, she made sure she got payment up front. She then set to work, seeing how far she could push Joyce's pocketbook and his patience. She insisted they move to Miami, where they bought a mansion on the bay for less than half of what Peggy demanded on her wedding night. Peggy had a pool built, surrounded by coconut palms, which she filled with real pet monkeys. And then she spent four times the cost of the pool on a string of pearls. She shopped compulsively, like an addict, spending the money of the man she had married and never loved like it would never run out. 
Or maybe like she was hoping it would run out. Then he would be totally useless, and she would have to divorce him. But shopping alone could not fulfill Peggy's needs. She also liked to flirt. Joyce was not easily cuckolded, and they had frequent fights over Peggy's behavior. Fights which often ended with Peggy lashing out in violence. Once, she smashed a champagne bottle over his head, and more than once, she used her bare claws to scratch his face. Peggy would later claim that her abuse of Stanley was part of his attraction to her. Of the champagne-smashing incident, she marveled, He seemed to like it and was even more crazy about me. In May 1920, Peggy and her husband set sail for Europe for a belated honeymoon. By the time Peggy returned to the U.S., she would no longer have a husband. It began on the boat, attending the ocean liner's nightly revelry dressed in her finest gowns, Peggy turned down zero of the men who asked her to dance. When Stanley protested his wife's dance floor promiscuity, Peggy began plotting in her diary to get rid of him. She had heard that it was easy to dissolve a marriage in France. She wrote, A girl told me that all you have to do is ask for a divorce and smile at the judge and he gives it to you. Peggy continued dancing with other men, in plain view of her husband, in all the most exciting nightclubs in Paris. Every night, Peggy would test the boundaries of what just short of open cuckolding her husband could stand. And every night, they would fight from their last club all the way back to their hotel and until they were totally spent. Every morning at dawn, they returned to their separate bedrooms passed out, and slept until mid-afternoon. Then, come cocktail hour, everything would start again. At least, Stanley thought Peggy was sleeping the day away. With Stanley asleep in his own room, it was easy for Peggy to rendezvous with other men when her husband thought she was sleeping off her hangover. Some of her lovers that summer in Europe included wealthy American businessman William Barton French, a French publisher-slash-playboy named Henri Letelier, tango dancer Maurice Mouvet, and an Albanian royal named Prince Flora. Peggy attempted to be sneaky about her dalliances, but Stanley was so easy to fool that occasionally she got lazy. At one point, She told her husband she needed to go off to a French country town by herself for a week of solitude. Stanley let her go, and of course, she really had one of her boyfriends meet her there. When her husband called the hotel, the front desk clerk informed him that his wife was out walking with a gentleman. Stanley finally put his foot down one night When they were at a casino, Peggy saw her tango dancer lover approaching, and she stood up from the table, and Stanley shoved her back into her chair. Peggy's diamond tiara fell forward, and a sharp edge cut her nose and drew blood. 
humiliated more than she was physically hurt. That night, Peggy refused to allow Stanley into her bedroom. Soon thereafter, he took advantage of a business pretext to return to Chicago, and he told his wife to stay in Europe without him. She was mildly skeptical of his motives, but because all she wanted was the freedom to stay in Europe on her husband's tab without having him actually there to hold her back, Peggy went with it. Peggy was deep in her affair with the Albanian prince when a New York newspaper reporter came to visit her at her hotel and asked her to comment on her impending divorce. This was the first Peggy had heard of her impending divorce. But indeed, Stanley had filed suit. His filings accused Peggy of having staged their wedding to defraud him out of $500,000 and of having committed adultery with no less than seven men. Which, fair... The trial began in the spring of 1921, and it quickly became national news. Peggy was declared by the opposition's legal team to be, quote, a vampire with the sting of death. By this point, they had upped the estimated number of co-respondents from 7 to 12, and were also charging that Peggy had inflicted, quote, extreme and repeated cruelty on Stanley, and also that her two previous divorces were illegal, making her a bigamist. These were, Peggy countered, absurdly untrue allegations. But other than the bigamy part, it was all basically true. But so were some of the claims in Peggy's filing, specifically that Stanley had lured her away from a successful, satisfying, and lucrative career. After she left Hopkins, right before her debut on the New York stage, Peggy had said that she wanted to be independent and not beholden to any man for anything. When she had married Joyce, she thought that giving up her independence, her license to do whatever and whomever she wanted— was a fair trade for access to Joyce's riches. But she learned quickly that she wasn't just a gold digger. Money wasn't enough for her. She needed adventure, preferably sexual adventure, to be satisfied. Peggy's behavior could be labeled as morally wrong, but so could the behavior of men like Stanley Joyce, who thought of women only as beautiful property. In a climate in which a lot of people were testing the limits of a new morality, in which a lessening of society's emphasis on marriage and a total lack of regulation on wealth accumulation had combined to offer women new paths to independence and self-realization, Peggy was not the only young lady who pushed the limits of what she could get away with. And in her third divorce... She got pushed back. Hard. What it all came down to was that Stanley had plenty of evidence of Peggy's infidelities. 
including testimony from two women who either helped to arrange or bore witness to her rendezvous, her former maid, and her ex-social secretary. The latter testified that Peggy had been known to pick fights with Stanley in order to get rid of him so that she could go meet another man. Instead of calling their client to the stand to defend herself, Peggy's lawyers insisted that she allow them to make an out-of-court deal. In the end, Peggy came out of the marriage with nearly a million dollars worth of jewelry, a Rolls Royce, two fur coats, and $80,000 cash. Stanley kept everything else, including all real estate acquired during the marriage and all of the debt Peggy had racked up. There was $700,000 in outstanding bills from her shopping sprees. The real blow to Peggy came when a judge reversed a previous decision that would have Stanley paying her alimony. Peggy walked away from the ordeal a major celebrity, but if she wanted to sustain the lifestyle to which she had become accustomed, she would have to figure out another way to fund it herself. Is it any wonder that, after another trip to Paris ended in tragedy, she soon ended up in Hollywood? Henri Letelier, one of the men who had inspired Stanley Joyce's divorce action, remained in Peggy's life, and in 1922, she returned to Paris, believing he would become husband number four. But Letelier hedged on cutting his other women out of his life. Then, an ex-boyfriend of Peggy's showed up, Chilean diplomat Billy Erezuriz, who coincidentally had been the real-life brother of the accused murderer Blanca de Salles, played by Miriam Cooper in the Raoul Walsh film she and Peggy appeared in together, The Woman and the Law. A love triangle between Letelier, Erezuriz, and Peggy led the three of them to spend one champagne-drunk night on the town together, with Peggy alternately dancing with both men. When Billy would get Peggy alone, he would implore her to run away with him. Apparently unable to decide between one suitor or the other, Peggy just kept drinking with both of them. Finally, with the sun coming up, she decided to go to bed alone. She told Billy to go to his room and that she would tell him which man she had chosen the next day. The Chilean said, There will be no tomorrow for me. Peggy didn't know what this meant. Billy went to his hotel room and shot himself. He left a note which didn't mention Peggy, and his family insisted that he had killed himself because he had money troubles he couldn't overcome. This was not the only such tragedy Peggy had been involved in. During the Joyce divorce trial, it emerged that in 1918, Army Lieutenant Alexander McClintock had shot himself after taking $7,000 from his regiment to buy Peggy jewels. Peggy had apparently tried to give the jewels back, 
but McClintock had already lost the will to live. Unlike so many disasters that just rolled right off of her, Billy's suicide seemed to genuinely hurt Peggy, who, a few days later, reportedly overdosed on sleeping pills in her Paris hotel room, and then immediately offered a journalist an interview about it. The syndicated United Press story that resulted got a lot of details wrong, such as that Peggy had been married four times at that point when the accurate number was three, But Peggy's quotes in it are striking, in that she was either genuinely regretful or had figured that this was the right time to market regret. I've learned that I love Billy, she said, and now it's too late. I loved him, but I played with him. I dangled him on a string, just as I did many others. Oh, why did I do it? After Billy, She insisted that she was through with men. My philosophy of life has changed, she declared. I'm going back to America and go into the movies. Within two weeks of the Arizarees suicide, though it had been years since she had even made a movie, a suddenly extremely scandal-shy Hollywood declared that Peggy Hopkins-Joyce was not welcome in the movie colony. The Motion Picture Theater Owners of America declared a ban on the exhibition of her movies, and the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association agreed to hold up their end of the blacklist by refusing to cast her in any more. There's no indication that Peggy had been thinking of Hollywood as the perfect place to launch her next act, until Hollywood got her attention by declaring that she was unwelcome there. So Peggy went to Los Angeles, announcing her intention to prove to the new Hollywood powers of moral arbitration that she was worthy of a second chance. Hollywood Babylon claimed she had $3 million in the bank, accrued from her five divorces. In fact, she had only been married three times, had only stood to collect significantly from the last two, and as we've seen, her penchant for spending meant that certainly, all but a fraction of the settlement from Joyce was likely already gone. But this wasn't entirely Anger's mistake. Charlie Chaplin used these numbers in his autobiography. The difference is that Chaplin said the numbers came from Peggy herself, and he expressed skepticism that Peggy had told him the truth. Before she met Chaplin, Peggy hooked up with Marshall Nealon, an actor-turned-director who was known as one of the most debaucherous men in town. Mickey, as he was called, worked hard and played hard. His closest friends were, on one end of the spectrum, D.W. Griffith and party boy Jack Pickford on the other. Neelan was thus the ideal man for Peggy to become involved with upon her arrival in Hollywood. He was fun, and he could help her career. Neelan was up for it all, initially, but he quickly realized that though Peggy was still uncommonly beautiful and charming, 
she just couldn't act. Having had his fill of her, Nealon started talking up one of his friends. Actress Colleen Moore rode in the car with Mickey and Peggy to Charlie Chaplin's studio. And as she recalled, I couldn't understand why, on the way over, Mickey kept telling Peggy how terribly rich Chaplin was. I supposed he thought adding the world's most famous comedian to her collection might not be enough for her. Mickey thought about right, and an hour in Peggy's presence was enough to spike Chaplin's curiosity. Still in mourning, she wore all black, but showed no restraint with her jewelry or perfume, or with her champagne consumption, or with her filthy mouth. At the time of their meeting, Chaplin was recently divorced from his first wife, Mildred Harris. They had married in 1918, when Harris was 16 and Chaplin was 29, solely because Harris thought she was pregnant. This turned out to not be the case, although a few months later, Harris did become pregnant, and the son she gave birth to only lived for a few days. The marriage put a spotlight on Chaplin's somewhat questionable sex life for the first time, and definitely not the last time. But he was able to assert himself creatively during this time with hits like Shoulder Arms and The Kid, which was one of the biggest successes of 1921. Not only did Chaplin have money, but everything he did made news which would have made him a highly attractive partner for Peggy. Chaplin recalls Peggy with no small amount of amusement in his autobiography, while also implying that she was a lovable phony. He gives a priceless glimpse into her methods. She would tell him, All I want is to marry and have babies. At heart, I'm a simple woman while adjusting the jewel-encrusted bracelets, which she jokingly referred to as her service stripes, from her previous marriages. In Chaplin's autobiography, he does not mention Peggy's question about his endowment, noted in Hollywood Babylon, and no other publication that I can find does either, without crediting Hollywood Babylon, as its source. He also doesn't detail their au naturel jaunts on Catalina. He does describe an incident on the boat of Thomas Ince, an extremely handsome pioneering director and producer who we will talk about more next week. As the trio drank champagne, Chaplin was able to observe Peggy from a distance, and he noticed that the drunker she got, the more she seemed to fancy Ince over him. Remembering Peggy's story about bashing her ex-husband's head in with a champagne bottle, Chaplin began to worry that there was some danger here in being pushed to the wrong side of Peggy's affections. As he recalled, I told her gently that if I saw the slightest suspicion of such a notion cross her pretty brow, I would toss her overboard. After that night, Chaplin claimed, Peggy stopped returning his calls and shifted her attention 
to Boy Wonder producer Irving Thalberg. This is not accurate. Peggy did have an affair with Thalberg, but it didn't begin until three years later. Others suspected that Peggy had lost interest in Chaplin because, although he was very wealthy, he was notoriously extremely cautious about parting with his money. Colleen Moore described him as, quote, one of the biggest tightwads. Of course, it's easy to assume that Peggy was only after Chaplin's money, but given what we know about how she treated her last rich husband, I wonder if Charlie's warning on the boat really was the death knell to their romance. It seems like Peggy was turned on by the idea of freedom and turned off by the notion of limits. She may never have considered bopping Chaplin over the head with a champagne bottle, but she didn't like to hear that there would be consequences should she impulsively do it. Peggy stayed in Chaplin's mind. In the months after their affair ended, Charlie began to write a film based on the stories Peggy had told him about her affairs with Henri Letelier, Billy Arazuriz, and the general decadence of her life in Paris. This movie would become A Woman of Paris, and it would be Chaplin's first dramatic film, as well as the first film he wrote and directed but did not act in. Edna Purviance would star as Marie, a young woman from small-town France who plots to escape her unhappy home life with her painter boyfriend. But tragedy strikes at the last minute. The painter is suddenly unable to meet the girl at the train station, and she goes on to Paris on her own and reinvents herself as a kept party girl. Cut to two years later, and her older lover-slash-benefactor, played by Adolphe Menjou, announces his marriage to another woman, but informs Marie that there's no reason their relationship has to change. Marie is distraught, and then the painter returns to her life. Torn between the financial security of life as a mistress or penniless love, Marie decides to elope with the painter. But as she approaches his apartment so they can try for a second time to run off together, she overhears him promising his mother, who doesn't approve of Marie's lifestyle, that he will not marry her. Marie then returns to her sugar daddy, but after tailing them to a swanky night spot, the painter shoots himself. The film ends with Marie and the painter's mother, united by their loss, running a country orphanage together. Given how closely the themes of A Woman of Paris hew to Peggy's actual experiences, and how frank the film is about Parisian social life, this tacked-on happy ending was especially ludicrous. But the film on the whole has enormous sympathy for the woman at its center, who is shown to be hardly the only young lady submitting herself to a sexual economy, and if anything, she's classier and less craven than some of her friends. A Woman of Paris was released in 1923, and it was a commercial failure. 
audiences weren't ready for Chaplin to depart so far away from the little tramp. Meanwhile, Peggy returned to the New York stage as the lead attraction of a scantily clad song and dance show called Vanities. The reviews for her performance were very bad, and Peggy soon went back to what she was good at, finding rich men to marry. Husband number four, acquired in 1924, was Count Carl Gustav Morner of Sweden, the scion of a Swedish toothpaste company who was running the family business's branch in Chicago. There was a perception that with every new marriage, Peggy added to her bankroll. But as we've seen, that wasn't exactly true. It was especially not true of the marriage to Count Mourner, who, it turned out, was already financially overextended when they met. He lasted about six weeks before he and Peggy separated. What she did add to with each wedding was her celebrity, which by 1924 was massive enough that it seemed that the only thing to do was to try one more time for movie stardom. This time, though the state of Wisconsin hurried to pass a censorship measure that would exclude movies made by women of such low morals from being exhibited in the state, the other Hollywood organizations that threatened to boycott her movies had come around. She was presumed to be such a surefire draw that Marshall Nealon decided to ignore the fact that she couldn't act. He agreed to direct Peggy in a film called The Skyrocket, a backstage Hollywood romance about a wannabe actress in a love triangle with a director and a writer. But the affection between Peggy and her director had evaporated, with Nealon believing Peggy to be a diva who hadn't earned the right to make demands. As usual, when Peggy asked for things, she was probably just testing to see what she could get. While shooting the film, it was observed that everywhere she went, she carried a ratty-looking shoebox held together with a rubber band. When the Skyrockets' art director asked her about it, she carefully pulled off the rubber band and opened the box, which was full of diamond jewelry. She said, this is my estate. In the promotion of the Skyrocket, Peggy was compared to Circe, Dewberry, Cleopatra, Lilith, and Helen of Troy. This press was invaluable to her and didn't do much to help the movie, which opened big but fell off immediately and ultimately had trouble breaking even. Peggy returned to New York, where she used a portion of her estate to set herself up in a grand apartment and wait for the next act to begin. She remained notorious for the next decade, thanks to milestones like Anita Lose's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, published first as a serial and then a novel, in which the gold digger Lorelai Lee, later to be played on screen by Marilyn Monroe, seemed to be based on Peggy. Peggy published her own fictionalized, ghostwriter-aided memoir in 1929. She was immortalized in the pages of Vanity Fair by photographer Edward Steichen. 
Cole Porter, worked her name into no less than a half a dozen songs. In between, her every flirtation and expenditure was documented in the newspapers. All of this kept her going, but it couldn't put her over the top. So, in 1933, Peggy took one more shot at Hollywood. She was given top billing in the Paramount comedy International House, heading a cast that included W.C. Fields, George Burns and Gracie Allen, the Cab Calloway Orchestra, and Bela Lugosi. The film lightly spoofed Peggy and her persona, casting her as an oft-married gold digger. International House was full of body double entendre, and, released in the immediate run-up to the enforcement of the production code, it faced much pushback from censors nationwide and internationally. Peggy was cast in one more film, Broadway Through a Keyhole, but on the third day of filming, she collapsed, and at the hospital, she was diagnosed with tonsillitis. Or, at least, that's what the newspapers said. Peggy's biographer doubts this was the real story, pointing out that Peggy was 40 years old, was starting to gain weight, and could never act. Whatever the truth was, Peggy had failed to become a movie star, and she wouldn't get another chance. Peggy Hopkins Joyce had never transitioned her persona to suit the end of the Roaring Twenties and the onslaught of the Depression. And so, by the mid-1930s, when she was in her early 40s, her act was seeming increasingly old. She slowly began to recede from the newspapers, and behind the scenes, transitioned from something like a highest-end courtesan into something more like a call girl. She took two more husbands. Number five was very short-lived, but number six... Andy Meyer, actually stuck. By this point, Peggy was in her late 50s, quite overweight, and visibly damaged by years of alcohol abuse. Now embarrassed of the way she looked, Peggy wanted to get out of New York, so she and her sixth husband moved together to Connecticut. Peggy and Andy would stay together for six years, although they didn't marry until five years in. The marriage was short-lived, but not like the other short-lived marriages. About a year after they tied the knot, Peggy got sick. She died in June 1957, at the age of 64, of throat cancer. Peggy Hopkins Joyce was both the ultimate Hollywood Babylon subject, a celebrity whose flagrant chasing of pleasure left her open to ridicule, and also a woman whose personality and unending desire was too big for Hollywood and the small boxes of its star types, or even its urban legends. She's maybe the only woman we've ever talked about on this show who, for better or for worse, lived her life completely by her own rules. Probably because she never stayed in Hollywood long enough to be induced 
to play by theirs. Next week, we return to the beat of untimely, somewhat suspicious deaths. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our two special guests this week. John Mullaney, who read from Hollywood Babylon, and Rachel Syme, who played Peggy Hopkins Joyce. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I'm a rich man's toy Sick of the way you've been putting me down Sick of all your stupid games I'm a rich man's toy I'm a rich man's toy You're a son of a gun and I'm easily led Coming up sometimes for air I'm a rich man's toy